Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Seattle, Washington, and Cindy, I don't want to get your last name wrong, but I do want to hold up the book. It's Under the Blossom, and we have Cindy Brinza. Am I saying it right? Benezra. Cindy Benezra. Benezra. So this is the book. Um, this is what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I would, we'll put a link in the blog so you can go to Amazon and get a copy of the book. It's beautifully written, Cindy, wonderful job that you did writing this book. And I'm going to let the listeners know a tad bit about you, but it's really going to be revealed because the book is a memoir in, in, a, in a sense, it really oh. is. Um, but it's also a way to help people that are dealing with trauma learn ways that they can cope. And in the back, you actually have some techniques um, that you provide to the listeners. And, you know, this is around sexual abuse, this program that we're going to be talking about that she incurred when she was very young. Um, She said, at times, the journey of life has felt uh, unbelievably rocky. Um, And she found strength, healing and hope in midst of some of the darkest corners of life. Um, as I said, there'll be some tools and resources. And for everybody out there, go to cindytalks.com. That's cindytalks.com. There you can actually watch some very, very interesting videos um, with the interviews with her family, her husband, um, and actually um, with her fa- her father. Um, and these are these are very touching. They really are. Um, and, uh, Cindy, as I was watching them this morning with your father, I was noticing that, um, during the, the sessions with the videos, and it's very brave of you, um, he didn't actually much open up his eyes. It was almost like he was ashamed because I was watching his body language in the chair, even though he's 84, but it was really interesting. And so in the book, you reveal your story as we said, of survival of an age, trying to escape this post-traumatic stress you suffered in your father's hands. Um, your story is obviously filled with pain and suffering, um, but there's also filled with joy as well along the way. Um, what do you want the readers to know about sexual abuse and and how you learn to cope and overcome with such abuse? Um. Well, I want to start off that. Um, so I didn't, I didn't grow up in this country. I happened to live at the time when I discovered that I had been sexually abused. I was living in Spain and not being able to speak the language, um, or read Spanish. Um, I had to find ways to, um, move past my trauma and I didn't even know what was going on. So, um, what I learned, um, so I kind of created, uh, found ways to love myself again, uh, found healing tools to that suited myself, I guess you could say, um, to feel alive again. Um, and in my book, I describe a lot more about what those tools are. And I don't know how much time because I could go on for an entire day just talking well, about you know, tools. you you this happened between the ages of five and ten, right? So you Correct. were yeah. you were kind of 
repressed. It was, I mean, I'm not saying that the memories of all this wasn't there, but you know, we'll talk about it. Your dreaming is really quite interesting. You know, the, well, at times you call them nightmares. Um, right. But, you know, you mention in chapter one of the book, and people will probably want to know, you know, why orange blossoms? Why orange orchards? Um, that it helped to trigger happy endorphins in you. So we're talking about a way you learned to cope with what was going on with you. Um, and eating an orange was escape. And I, I remember this in particular, you know, cause you were talking about not only how you peeled it, but kind of how the orange was a little bit sticky, um, in, in there. And you mentioned that you frequently thought about jumping out of your bedroom window from the fifth floor. Um, what do you believe kept you from such a fate that really could have ended your life? Um, I believe, um, for the first part of that, I, I, to just to go back to answer one part of your question there about the orange blossoms, um, and why the orange blossoms. And when I would run away or I would feel stuck or, um, basically stuck, um, after my father, beat me or I was sexually molested, I would get on my bicycle and ride as hard as I can. Um, I lived in rural Arizona at that time and ride as hard as I can. It was like a physical release and then go into the orange, um, the orange orchids. And in there, I would be able to find something that was um, beautiful, that was um in nature and in nature, I was able to, I, I trusted nature more than I did trusted humans. Um, humans seemed to disappoint me. I could never rely on them and it smelled great. They produced beautiful fruit. The orange blossoms or the orange trees would grow in the mud and I could look down and think like, okay, I'm living in the mud. I'm just like this tree. And so it was almost in a sense, like a role model for me because I couldn't find one around me. And I could also scream into the trees and no one was going to hit me back. And no one was, it was just myself. So basically it was a sanctuary and I was able to find something in that process that was greater than me. And I realized that I was just Another human being, another soul, just searching for a way out when you get stuck. And um, I just found something greater than me. And I I think that was kind of like the beginning of this huge process of being connected to the earth and to something like a higher power. And I think that's what carried me through all the way through. I would be able to learn how to connect back to tasting the bite of the orange, smelling the orange blossoms. And that was the thing that I was able just to connect in anywhere I was at any form of trauma that I was going through in life. And we all go through things, but it was something that I was able to recreate in my home, like the, a sanctuary in my home, my office, um, wearing uh, citrus colognes, candles, things like that. That was able where I was able to reconnect instantly through my sensories and then through my heart um, of what kind of saved me. It was always kind of like a, my reminder. I, I think that, you know, for all these interviews I've done over a thousand now and, and many about personal growth and most people that are experiencing some level of trauma 
and you have them in the back of your book, some techniques, um, are, are looking for ways, and I'm not going to call it an escape, but nature has always been walking in the woods, walking on the beach, um, finding ways to get out to release, as you said, the endorphins right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the oxytoxins. So the oxytoxins, so physically to be released, because that's the high that you get from that, that really makes you feel good to help you overcome that pain. You know, when you're in pain, um, most of the time, the hospitals are going to give you morphine to try and deaden it. And in this sense, you're you're trying to enliven within you through those releases of jogging, mountain climbing, whatever it might be, that you do. Um, and that's why you see these people in extreme sports. I just finished helping write a book, uh, The Precipice of Life. And it was 27 extreme sports people, mostly mountain climbers who'd been up Everest. And they asked, you know, why do you keep doing that? Why, you know, that's so dangerous. They don't look at it as dangerous. They say, um, one of the statements that I heard over and over after 27 interviews is that if you're not facing death, you're not living life. And I thought, wow, how profound, meaning they're willing to go all the way to that extreme pain to have this enlivened feeling in their life. You know, and in your case, I hear what you were saying. It was so poignant about these oranges, orange candles, orange blossoms, all of that, which really kind of took you away from it. And I found that many of those people I interviewed were doing that to prove something to somebody, um, you know, to go up and conquer a mountain or so on. And I'm going to switch gears here because this is a very sensitive topic, but you were molested by your father from the ages of five to 10. I remember reading right. in the book the, the the descriptions of him coming over your bed, um, the situation with your sister. Your memories of these events haunted you into nightmares, as explained in the book. And you mentioned that you used to daydream and check out. Again, another way to cope, another coping mechanism, and which you now realize was disassociation, right? Disassociation from the vent. Does this disassociation allow you to cope with your memories of your father's actions, or did it, I should say? Um because that seems like what you were doing in the orange blossoms. That seems like the the way that you were attempting to cope um, with the emotional trauma associated with this. I think in the orange blossoms, I was able to um, find some some kind of uh, sanctuary, some kind of safe place. However, when I recognized that I had, because I had forgotten what happened to me as a child. Um, my mind just froze. I just forgot what happened. I forgot. I remembered everything. The only thing I forgot was about the sexual abuse. And I knew my dad was a violent person, but I, that was about it. I knew that I didn't like him. I created space with around him. Um, I knew I had some really strange coping techniques. Like I always tried to pretend I was the wallpaper and I had no idea where that expression came. Um, and when I didn't want to be seen, I would say, be the wallpaper, be the wallpaper, be the wallpaper. Cause I didn't want to be seen. I just didn't know where it all came from. And when I was 16, um, close to 17, I was, uh, 
uh, well, I was thinking about being sexually active and recognized boys were pretty cute. So, um, and in this process, I realized that um, I started to have uh, nightmares, which later on I found out was all of the things I was going through was uh, forms of PTSD. And um, I started having these just horrific nightmares where I was screaming, completely sweaty. Um, I felt like they were just coming out so fast and they were so different. They felt so real. So I would journal them down. I'd write it down on any piece of paper and I'd write it down because once I took the piece of paper and wrote it down, it, um, I just wanted to know that I wasn't crazy. And so when they were on piece of paper, I could dismiss it. It was almost like, okay, that's down. I'm out of it. And I had so many of these things that I decided to kind of keep a journal and I would look through them again. And I realized there was a pattern to them. And so I think when you're like somebody who has suffered a lot of trauma and you experience a lot of PTSD, it's, and you can't recall all of it. And you're trying to figure out what happened because you recognize that most likely this is probably, you know, if you're dreaming this, maybe hundreds and hundreds of time, you realize like, this is probably something you've experienced. And it's like having a broken window and you're trying to put all the pieces of that broken window together. So everything's in shatters. Everything is just, it's, you're trying to put it all together. So when I was looking through my words, looking through my journals, I recognized that I was writing the same thing, but in different formats or in that right. I would kind of go, oh, that was a time period here. This definitely most likely happened. I mean, I would say definitely most likely because I really didn't know, but I, it was just too uncanny to go through so much and write in such detail, like the color of the room, you know, the lighting of the room, what it smelled like. So um, it's almost like all those emotions were locked up with inside of you. You know, I remember you writing about your, your girlfriends at the time when you were a teenager and you did want to get involved with boys, you know, they were talking about the size of their shoe or the size of their hand or, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, and, and you were quite descriptive of that and then found out that, if, you know, even somebody with a small shoe didn't, it didn't correlate to the size of their <laughs> instrument. Um, and, you know, I, right. I, you know, I'm wondering as a woman blossoming as you were, you know, as kind of your father says in the, in the interviews. And for those of you definitely go to cindytalks.com and, and watch those interviews with her father. Um, you know, how did all that play out for you? You being able to, you obviously ended up getting married. You obviously ended up having kids. You obviously, you know, went through or grew through those things. And how did you grow through it? That's basically what I would say, because, you know, here you were molested as a child saying, well, these memories I blocked out, but then really you didn't because then you wrote them down in a journal and it was coming out pretty much. And then you have to get involved with another male figure and this figure, you know, and so, and you had a very, um, a poignant discussion on the video I watched with a third gentleman kind of interviewing you and your husband, your now husband, because this is your second husband, right? So, right. Right. And, you know, 
you know, when you watch the body language, it's interesting, you know, it's very interesting to see how people are dealing or trying to cope with it. So the question is really, you know, we talked about disassociation. We talked about your journal and how those journal was bringing that all out. That was one of your coping mechanisms. Was there anything else you were doing to be able to go through those steps that allowed you to have those relationships again? Because many women will just totally block it out. Well, I think if you go, if you have, well, I happen to have complex um, PTSD. And so it's it's a, a little bit more complicated than just your straightforward PTSD. So it's almost like a, a hiccup. Sometimes I don't know when it's, I'm going to have mm. uh, maybe something occur. I've learned how to control my impulses a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I have set up boundaries around me where I tell people that I have this, like support me through this. Don't leave me, you know, like I'll, I'll roll with it. Um, but if I look back at my dissociation and what I think like what a miracle dissociation was um, that I was able, that my brain like just locked things so that I could develop and be a teenager and go through these things. And then later on in life, when I really wanted to know more of this information, more, more unlocked things happen. And I was, had a lot better coping skills to deal with this. And I realized that the only way I could, um, set boundaries was and protect myself later on as an adult was by talking to people and letting them know like, Hey, I have a fear of this or talking to my significant other, my husband, my current husband saying, okay, you need, can you help me? Can you support me in this? These are the things that will most likely trigger me. And I think in that process, I just became very open, almost raw, um, just telling people what I needed. And I think in that I started to connect more with who I am. And I just started to release my shame because the more you talk about things, it's like you're releasing those triggers, even writing something down on paper, just like that. It discharges that connection you have with that, that intensity. I mean, yes, you recognize that it happened. However, it discharges when you through storytelling, through writing, through education, it, through yeah, it does. I, I I I actually got a master's degree in spiritual psychology, and one oh, of I the know. things that we did was we would write journals, and then the instructors mm-hmm. requested that um, that we never read them; we just write them, and then we burn them. Right. Ah. And I remember going through that and writing a ton because I was having issues with the relationship with a son and a bunch of issues. Right. And then the healing part of it, what we did to actually heal, you know, like sticking pictures of them in front of us and sending them messages every day when the pictures were there. Right. So loving messages and healing messages. And it's interesting how over time that is kind of a way to um, forgive, right? And I think forgiveness is a big thing. And somebody like you with your father, you had to do that. You also have these other techniques. And I, I loved reading about these because the journaling was great. But you also, to get rid of this heavy cloud, you said you'd take long barefoot walks on the beach, which we just said. 
you'd exercise, you'd do a hundred sit-ups every morning. Um, you'd read inspirational books. One of them was Edgar Allan Poe's writing, you said. Um, do you find that these actions, they were obviously comforting, but if you were to tell others listening today that we're trying to heal from some PTSD event or sexual abuse or whatever it might have been, um, what kind of advice would you provide who's already been on the other side of this? Um, and I would say probably particularly women who are listening to this because it's about 60% of our listeners who may have suffered this, but are still hiding it. Um, I think um, I'm going to go back to when I was about 17 and I realized that this was true, that this was my reality and this was my family. And I had a hard time coping with it where I contemplated suicide and I contemplated it every day and thought about jumping from my bedroom window. And the reason I thought about it, it wasn't like I was desperately depressed. It was I couldn't handle the pain. Mm-hmm. And in the, the, the feeling of so much pain, I just wanted it to stop. And I didn't know how else to make this pain stop other than thinking about killing myself. So I would go through the process of, of, uh, why I should stay here on this earth and why I should not. So I had a pros and cons list and I wrote it down on paper and I would write everything that I would miss things that I liked, um, things that I, I wanted to accomplish from not being here on this earth. And mostly I realized when I'm looking at the piece of paper, I realized that a lot of it was just stopping my pain and it was about fear. And when I looked at all the things that were just so beautiful that I liked even to like things that I like to eat, I thought, well, I would miss that. I would miss this, you know? And it wasn't really so much my family. I just realized that I would miss a lot of part of life. And in that, I think just by going through that process, and again, it's about taking that charge out and going through that process. And then I realized, no, I'm, I don't, I don't want to, I probably could fix this. I didn't know how, but I thought I probably could fix this. So it was like, things that I found beautiful. I looked out there. I thought maybe walking in the sand, feeling the sand, because I felt nothing. I could hardly even see colors in the world um, because I hated myself. I hated everything about it. So I think it was trying to get back into touch with life and loving myself. And it was trying to find things that I love about myself. And I had very few. I remember I liked my front teeth. And I liked my eyebrows and um, I like the color blue. And so I would just start focusing on those things and try to give myself a lot of affirmations. I'd write them down, say it again, like um, I'm, I'm, I'm beautiful because of, and I would write a mantra. I would say it 20 times. Every time I go to the bathroom, I would stuck it on my mirror and I would say it over and over again until I felt a shift. And then just write another one. And it's almost like self-talking. I didn't know how to find a shift, try to break that cycle. But eventually, through hundreds of mantras, of things, of saying more positive things, um, I just started to slowly shift. And I don't even know how it happened, but it just started to happen. And I found value well, in myself. It's it's self-acceptance, right? In other words... Self- yeah. You know, you get to a point where um, 
your enlightenment is self-acceptance of self. In other words, it is how you people, you know, I remember talking to Brian yesterday, actually, we were talking about Dr. Brian Ullman and goes to India twice and is trying to find these masters who are enlightened. And the guy says, you have it all wrong. Enlightenment isn't a space where just people, because he was always looking for this perfect person who is going to be this most enlightened soul that he was going over there to find. And the guru said to him, no, it's about self-acceptance of what is. And I think, you know, at times you have to go into that. And, you know, your history here, your histogram, your story, you know, you look at your father and your mother, and then you meet Henry, and you're 22, and he's 23, and both of you marry, and you get pregnant, and you have Hannah, who, by the way, when you guys want to actually see the family, go watch the video at cindytalks.com. And you have a second child, Brian, who is diagnosed with a brain tumor and seizures. Okay. So here comes another event, another event that you have to learn how to cope with. And then your life comes tumbling down, including a husband who's taking money off your credit cards, having affairs. Um, So it's like the triple whammy, right? It's like you get, you've been sexual abused. You marry this guy. He's taking your money. He's having affairs. You're having a son that's having seizures. This is obviously a lot to deal with, right? It obviously is a lot to deal with. How did you cope with these challenges? Um, I know we've talked about some of them, but now you're, you're going into the trauma of a son who's got potentially life threatening uh, illness. And it's not like you can put all these things on a magnitude. But if you were to like rank it and say, well, my father's sexual abuses or my son's brain seizures, right? And then a husband who's having an affairs. And if you said, well, I was going to rank those on a one to 10, you know, where, where would they fit? You had a lot that were probably in the eight, nine and 10 area, right? Exactly. It could have, it could have driven anybody to do what you wanted to do. Now, granted that jumping out of the window was what you were going to do when you were a teenager, but. Um, you, were you thinking about suicide then too? No. And I think, um, no, because I think, um, I think that's kind of, and I'm, I'm not for me at the time, it wasn't the mindset of a child. I didn't really have like a lot of skill set. And then when you become older, you realize I have children, you know, there's there, I have responsibilities. It doesn't become about me anymore. It's, it's way bigger. It's way more complicated. And I mean, I also had at that time, my mom was dying and I was nursing her and she was in the final stages of breast cancer. So I would go from one room where my son was just diagnosed. I didn't know if he was going to make it. It was every day. I didn't know if he was going to be there. And then I would go to the next room. I would check in my mom and she was dying from breast cancer. And I could see the cancer coming up, you know, up on her neck. And then my husband, who was, um, you know, doing drugs and um, becoming paranoid. And I was like, I don't recognize these people. And I did put them in categories. I have to say I did put them in categories. I thought, okay, my mom's passing. I cannot change this. I cannot fix my husband. He's on his own journey and he chose this. And I looked at my son and I thought, I just gave birth to this kid. And 
he's only a few months old. And so I did prioritize. I thought, okay, I'm going to prioritize um, where my emotional effort is going to be spent. And I thought, and oddly, because of what I had experienced in the past, all these different forms of trauma, in some crazy way, it prepared me for that moment. Mm-hmm. And I kind of looked at, and I know that's, I've shared this with other, with other people. And I said, it was almost like a gift, like, cause it did prepare me how to deal with that. And I shared that with my son and he goes, are you telling me a brain tumor was a gift to you? And I'm like, no, it wasn't a gift, but I was able to have so many tools like meditation in hand, prayer, um, all these tools that I survived with that I could use at that time. And I have to say, there was a lot of times where red wine kind of, I just couldn't find a solution, but a glass of red wine at the end of the evening was like, okay, let me chill and let me have a glass of red wine to try to like process this all because there wasn't a solution. And I recognized that in that it wasn't about me. It was way beyond, way beyond me. And I think that's more what I think is a lot of adult thinking where you recognize, you know, yes, I was suicidal as a kid, but I had nothing else to think about. I was thinking more like, oh, I'm going to get a secondary infection and that's why I can't die. But this was just way beyond it. So it was monumental and it was piece by piece. I think when you're confronted with something that's just horrific, you take it piece by piece and you look at those wins and that victory and you celebrate every single one of them. And my son was having 63 seizures a day. And I remember thinking he got a new medication and maybe he had 30 that day. And I celebrated that win. And if my ex-husband came home, you know, high and drunk, um, I would just think like, but we didn't get in an argument. You know, I was just taking basic stuff, just basic. And my mom, you know, that she found pain relief that day. And I thought, well, this is not, I can only maintain this so long. I don't know how long, but it was just a day by day process. And yes. Well, you did categorize them is what you said. And that's how you learned to cope with them. And I think Sometimes, you know, they, I think there's a reference to the pain body, right? And, you know, yeah. you can only um, uh, have so much of that. And I think one of your compartmentalizing techniques was really a great technique for you. And, you know, you wrote in the book, um, you carried around pain from your father's actions for obviously quite some time um, right. and maybe even still so today. But when you remarried to Mark, Uh, Your mother-in-law insisted that your father come to dinner and you wrote in the book, this is a a chapter, Dinner with a Pedophile. Um, And she obviously didn't know about your father. She didn't have a clue um, because you haven't, you hadn't told her, I guess, right? Um, Right. You have a chapter, as you said, that's titled Dinner with a Pedophile. If you would tell the listeners kind of about the dinner and when you looked into his eyes, what you felt, because you guys had kind of been in different parts of the world, right? You weren't seeing him a lot. Um, and, you know, you had this opportunity and there was going to be a dinner. And, you know, from the book, you as a child and young adult, you kind of moved around a lot. You know, you were in different places. So, <laughs> yeah. So tell yeah. us about that dinner and what happened. And 
I mean, I know that Mark, he knows now, obviously you told him, uh, according to your video, like, um, I think you guys have been dating two months when you told yep. him, right. And he was right. very accepting of it. Very accepting. It was kind of interesting dating too. It was a, almost like a screening process. I would go through <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to tell them right away. You know, I'm not going to leave this one out. And I thought like if they didn't have the skills to talk through or that, that just terrified them or um, whatever it is, but I had right away, it was just something like, I need to find somebody who is strong, who could communicate with me who was open, um, could have deep conversations. And it was sort of a, cause I had been single for eight years and it's not because I couldn't have a relationship. It's just, I had a serious, a child with a, some serious health issues mm-hmm. and he was my priority. And then later on, um, when I told Mark, I mean, it was, I found it interesting out of all the people, he's the one who questioned me. He, um, he's like, well, how do you know it's, how do you how do you know, you know, um, if he says it's not, and you're saying it does, how do you know, like, what side do you take? And I remember kind of being disturbed by that, but I appreciated his honesty and thinking like, yes, it is, you know, his word against your word. And who do you listen to? And what is the reality of the situation? But um, that was a complicated time, but I really appreciated Mark's um, questioning. And I thought, okay, this is a person I could have in my life because I am very complex and I, I do have a lot of depth in these yeah. areas. So I was searching for somebody like that. Yeah. Well, he that seems very to- logical. I mean, I listened to the interview and I say your, <laughs> your husband, Mark seems very logical is what I was saying. And it, and it really, I can just tell just by the few seconds that I got to meet him, uh, um, really caring. Really caring, yeah. very caring soul. Now, look, at the end of this and on your website, cindytalks.com, you have these interviews. And the interviews, the video interviews, I'm going to tell my listeners, you want more than the book, go to the website and watch these interviews. Um, they're, they really reveal a lot about this story and a lot about what has happened since the stories, but you ended up taking care of your father at the end stages of his life. And you start interviewing your dad and you state that this marks the beginning of the publishing journey that you're talking about. Uh, You mentioned that you did a series of tape conversations that spanned six months. So this end stages, uh, you're taking care of your father uh, and this started the publishing and you have this chapter, dad's time to talk to reveal the interviews. Um, I found these interviews compelling, uh, so much so that I asked my wife to watch them too. Um, can you tell the listeners what happened during the interviews and what happened with relation to Cindy and Cindy's healing? Um, because this was really about you finding forgiveness, I think. He was 84 years old, or is 84 years old during those interviews. Um, It's very apparent when you watch him that he doesn't really want to talk about this, that he's he's very resistant to you, but he does open up, and his answers are sometimes quipped and short, 
um, because that's just who I am. I thought that was interesting because you talked about a little boy that he obviously molested in the neighborhood as well, who was a little mm-hmm. mm, retarded, he even says. Um, and it's like, oh my gosh, your father not only molested you, and now he's molesting a little boy too, <clears throat> and giving him magazines to cut out pictures and things. And I'm like, wow, I, I was just blown away. He actually molested quite a few people, um, friends. And when I was doing the audio portions of this, because I I wanted to know more of his thinking, I thought, well, I don't know where this book is going. Um, he never really apologized to me in the format that I would like to hear. Yeah. And um, but in his way, he apologized. Um and I got it on on video. Uh, it wasn't the apology that I truly wanted to hear. So I was a little in shock. Um, I tried not to react because I didn't want to throw in my personal opinions. I really wanted the person watching it to just observe and um, translate how they feel about the conversation without me suggesting or leading, just, just asking him questions and seeing where he goes with it. So it was, um, I I found every single one of them hard for me physically to listen to. I found it. um, I would cry. Most of the time I would go to the, to the side and I cry. I was disgusted by his reality. I also recognize, which I never really, really thought about how ill he is, yeah. how mentally ill he, he was. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very disturbed. Um, but in that, when I have truth and when I have understanding, I could get, I, I'm a truth seeker. I don't like to hear it, but I can move past. I understand it. Um, it doesn't mean I have to accept it, but I have to, it has, it has to resonate in my body. And with that, I'm able to find forms of healing. It just takes a lot longer. And I did go through a stage of understanding my father a lot more, but it really came until way after the interview process. And I think it came way after my children reacted and they found out that their grandfather was a pedophile. And in that, I think it, I found healing and resolution in the process of being able to find grace for him and um, have compassion and disregarding everybody who judged me for taking care of him. And I realized in that process that it was, it's who I, who I am. And I think I've always hated myself. In fact, I came to love myself even more by finding that part of myself where I go, no, I'm going to be true to myself. I'm going to take care of my dad. I don't, if a dog bites me, if I found it on the side of the road, I would pick it up and still take care of that dog. And I thought that's who I am. And I thought, you know, my dad never changed me. I'm still the same person that I was meant to be here on this earth. No matter what the circumstances of life brought me, I'm still the same person. And I haven't changed. My soul is mine. He never broke my will. It's mine to keep. And that's what I learned out of that. And so in that, I found a lot of love for myself and self-healing 
and forgiveness for my father and even forgiveness for the the way I thought about him and the crazy things I thought about him. So, well, I was, think that you, it's very apparent you're a very compassionate individual and you have a compassion for your family and compassion for your father. So there'd be a lot of women that would have disowned their father and never seen them again. Um, but then that wound would have been deeper and you realize that, you know, and the other thing is it, it draws me back to a memory of, um, you know, man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl. Um, you know, if you've never read that book, it's about the concentration camps, but it's more about people taking away your dignity. What you didn't allow your father to do was take away your dignity. Um, you know, the people in the concentration camps and the um, the military officers who were beating them and giving them you know, the toughest times, they were really trying to break them down. Um, you know, and in and in essence, if you can't be broken down because your mental constitution is so strong, um, you find other ways. So a lot of people would play instruments. They would do things to escape. You say disassociate. They had to because the conditions were just so horrific, right? And uh-huh. um that, you know, that whole concept of your dignity as an individual um, is so important. If you were to leave the listeners today with some sound advice on abuse that your father gave you, um, what would you tell someone who might be going through something similar in a relationship? And in this case, maybe it's just an abuse from a spouse or abuse from a boyfriend, but it's abuse. It's abuse that's affecting them emotionally. It's affecting them mentally, spiritually, um, and physically, right? The bruises, the whatever it might be. What would you say as somebody who's been through much of this? Um, it's a technique that I've learned and it doesn't matter what it is. Cause I remember my divorce was one that just trying to think if, if I was going to get a divorce or not get a divorce. And um, it's this process that I kind of do with now with everything. And if it, if there's something that's an obstacle or a horrible obstacle and you don't know what to do with it, I always look at it. Like, how would I tell my best friend, somebody that I adore and love, how would I tell my child what are the words I would, how would I talk to them and then give them at least three or four things, constructive advice. And so I do this with myself and I actually write it down. I just try to give a quick, short little sentence about kindly how I would help myself as a friend. But I really try to take my sin, that dissociation works really well in this technique, but I really try to take myself out of the picture because when you remove yourself, you take the fear out of that. So if you're referring to a friend, somebody that you love, like your child, it comes completely out of love. And so writing a few suggestions out of love for your best friend and then offering it and just putting the piece of paper down, coming Mm. back and going, oh, okay, put your name in front of that or address it. Cindy or whatever, you know, Greg, address that and look at that and then go, okay, 
this is the advice that I'll take. There's only three here and I could do it. You don't have to solve all of them, but just give three good solutions and the rest will follow. I mean, we all have incredible strength and tools all within us. You don't have to find great masters. You have it within your body, within your soul. You have this divine beacon that tells you what is right and what is wrong. And you know what works for you and you have to tap into that and listen to that and only your voice. And those will be the things that guide you through the end. And you don't have to figure out all the little things. You know, most likely. if you. I think you have to have a lot of hope, faith, belief. Um, You talk about some of these in your, in the last part of the book. And I'll just min- give them a quick mission, mention self-healing techniques. I thought the sticky notes was pretty cool. And for all of you, go, go and get the book. Visionary work, mantras, journaling. Okay. And we're talking about a few. Obviously, meditation, exercise, self-care. I think loving yourself is probably one of the most important ones. Deep breathing, breath work. Okay. And the list goes on. Um, Reiki. Um, there's a lot of things you can do that can help you cope, learn how to cope with this. And I would say one of the biggest things is really to have a belief in something greater than yourself. This would be the side of me from the spiritual side that says, okay, no matter what your belief is, whether you're agnostic or not, um, the reality is, is that when you can believe in a higher power to help you through many of these things, it really does help a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying who or what higher power it is for people, but there is a higher power out there. If you meditate and you listen and you get in touch with it, it's there. Okay. Not again. <laughs> um, so that's really the most important thing. And I think the, the book, and the videos that you have created at the website are just so instructional, Cindy. And I want to say thank you for doing this because this is a topic that's um, so close to you. Um, it's so personal. Um, it takes a lot of, I'm going to say, courage to do what you've done. Um, and you're helping people out there that need to heal. Uh, and you're helping with the book. And I'm going to hold the book up. Do go get a copy of this book, everybody who's out there listening. Uh, read the book. It's very well written. It's a great memoir, but in it, there's lessons, lots of lessons about the pain and suffering she went through and how she learned how to cope with it. And that's the best part. Any parting words for our listeners? I, I just want to say that, um, Without a doubt, whatever you're going through in life, I do know that you will come through if you choose to put a little effort into it. I know you will come through. Well, thank you and namaste to you. Thank you for being in here. (laughs) And I appreciate you and appreciate what you did. And for all my listeners, again, go get the book. It's out there. It'll be on Amazon. We'll have a link here. And we really appreciate you taking the time, Cindy, to spend a few minutes with our listeners today talking about your new book, Under the Orange Blossom. Please go get a copy of the book. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.